measure myself now with that one. <clears throat> Somebody asked me this morning how uh, Darth Vader likes his bacon, and I, I said uh, he prefers it on the dark side. So there you go. Better not give up my day job. So we're going to continue in the book of Romans as soon as Cheryl gives me the, we're on, okay. Welcome around the world and Facebook family. We're going to continue in our series on the, in the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to read verses 5 through 20. And then uh, we're going to really start reading around verse 5 to pick up where we left off last week and try to get through verse 12 if we can. So you can follow along. Starting at uh, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, <coughs> what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Look at verse 6. May it never be, or God forbid. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But <clears throat> if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some have slanderously reported, <clears throat> and some, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or unbelievers are all under sin. Look at verses 10 with me through 19. Very important. As it is written, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they continue deceiving. The poison of asps or vipers, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Listen, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, no flesh will be made right in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Oops, slide five. So let's pick up at where we left off last week. Slide five. Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Let's look at it in the New Living Translation, slide six. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. So, church, last week we, we looked at how Paul dealt with the sinful cleverness of the sinner. The statement he makes right here in verse 5, if our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Now, again, we've got to keep in mind here, 
that Paul was laying out his explanation because of these charges that were being levied against him. And he wanted them to understand that he does not believe even for a moment this foolishness. He doesn't believe it. And he doesn't teach it. If our sin makes God righteous, righteousness stand out more gloriously, does this then make God unrighteous? We learn how unsaved man argues. Even back in Paul's day, men would twist God's word around so they could justify their own sinful behavior, just like us today. The Jews, it's, they, they might have been thinking to themselves, well, Paul, if our sinfulness and our failures have contributed to God's majesty being more revealed, on what grounds is he then punishing us? Paul, you're trying to prove to us that we're going to be punished just like those unbelievers, those dogs, those Gentiles are going to be punished. How in the world then can God punish us who are magnifying this righteousness and grace? <laughs> and again, Paul's laying this out in human terms. What does he mean here? Notice how this argument is how natural, unsaved people will argue. They will always try to justify sinful behavior. And let's be honest this morning. We at times are guilty of doing the same thing. Imagine how we could twist things around when we want our own way. Even saved people at times will try to justify sinful behavior as well. And the unsaved person is always trying to play with words to win an argument. And one of the most revealing characteristics, church, of fallen sinful man is his amazing ability to rationalize sin. <clears throat> Look at slide 7. Look at Jeremiah 17.5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed, or cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, and he makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Or, like at the, the uh, New Living, how it puts it. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, and they turn their hearts away from the Lord. Boy, don't we see that happening today. <clears throat> Hear me this morning. God cannot ever, ever be tempted to deceive. It's against his nature. Think about how sinful this argument is. Church, if any sinful, vile act can no longer be called bad or can no longer be punished, then pretty much you can do any evil thing you wish for the sake of some good result, and it opens the floodgate of evil. And man, we see that happening today. <clears throat> and as I stated last week, we see this happening in our world right now. So then, any doctrine or thinking which would allow for such sinful behavior is by its very fact atrocious, church. So it's like the Jews would be saying, like, Paul, if you're saying then that my sin brings out God's mercy and compassion then God must forgive sin. That is the sad, perverted logic of sinful man today. Look at verse 8. Look at Paul's response to this in verse 6. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? Or the NLT, of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how then would he be qualified to judge the world? Now, as I said last week, we must never forget that God, listen, God never acts unjustly. And I know how easy it can be for us to put God on trial when things are really messy in our lives. How messy things can get in our lives. And then we're like, well, if God really loved me, why would he allow this to happen? And we can put God on trial so easily. And forget that we are part of the fallen world. Our sin contributes to this fallen world. But God's judgment, church, is always according to truth. Paul says here, may it never be. Literally in the Greek, don't even ever let that thought come into your mind. God never acts unjustly. He always acts in accordance with his character. And God never condones sin in order to glorify himself. 
It's not God's heart that is sinful and corrupt. It's our own hearts and our own minds that are sinful and depraved. And God is just to inflict his wrath. What does Paul want us to understand? He says, how would he, how would God be qualified to judge the world? So the point that we can glean from this is that God is not unjust if he inflicts wrath and judgment on his people. If he were unjust, how would he would be able to judge the world? So Paul is alluding to an Old Testament passage, slide 9, in Genesis 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now keep in mind, the Jews back in that day believed the Old Testament to be authoritative. We learned that last week. The Old Testament is every bit as important as the New Testament. Let's never forget that. Look at slide 10. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? He said, if you're going to believe that about me, why am I being judged as a sinner? Or slide 11, the NLT. But some may still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory. Just the insanity of it. So, slide 12. Here Paul is addressing his critics of that day who were charging Paul with a teaching called antinomianism. What is antinomianism? What is it? What is it? Can I buy a vow? Let me buy a vow. So, antinomianism is... This teaching that one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law, listen, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary for salvation. A person that practices this is one who rejects a socially established morality. So you can get away and do whatever you want. You're under grace. You know, a lot of churches preach the love part and they want to sing kumbaya and how wonderful and loving God is, and that's all true. But God is also a just God. And part of the gospel is not just let's sing kumbaya and everybody have a good time and Jesus is my very special friend. Jesus does love us, but he is also a God who judges. So this type of heretical thinking means that the more a wicked a person is, the more he or she glorifies God. It's very hedonistic, which means you can have all you want with no restraints. So the more, the teaching would be that the more faithless a person is, the more faithful he makes God appear. That's a lie from the pit of hell, church. They will teach the more we sin, the better God looks. A lie. That is a very horrendous, evil way of thinking and acting because God is a just God. So here, Paul is now beginning to get more personal to get his point across. So he is in essence saying that if God's truth abounds and Paul's lying about what he's sharing, then why would he be judged a sinner? Paul is saying, hey, here I am. I'm a sinner. And if my sin has made the truth of God stand out, why then am I being judged as a sinner? His conclusion is that if our sins made God judging us to be more of an unjust act, then no one could be judged for any sin. No one could be condemned. They can practice this antinomianism, and they can just, there's no moral law, I can do whatever I want. And you see how destructive that kind of thinking is in our world today? The world calls what's bad good and what's good bad. Slide 13, verse 8. And why not say if we are slanderously reported? Every again, this was a slanderous report by the Pharisees and the Jews of that day. As some would claim, let us do evil, that good may came. They're trying to blame Paul and say that's what Paul's teaching. When in fact, Paul's not teaching that. Look at slide 13, NLT. <clears throat> and some people even slander us by claiming that we're saying the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. 
Those who hated Paul and hated Paul's teaching were the, an onslaught of continually levying charges against Paul, and they were saying that Paul was granting people a license to sin. And Paul is just doing the opposite. Let us do evil, the good may come. Paul is saying, why not continue? It must be a good thing to sin, because the more I sin, the more the grace and mercy of God's love shines forth. And again, Paul's talking in this human terms. What he's trying to do, church, is he's trying to correct this misguided misunderstanding of his teaching because those Jewish leaders of his day were slanderously saying that Paul was teaching, the more you sin, the more God's grace will shine. Remember, they were under the law. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do all these rituals and things. So people did not need to live righteously. They did not need to bother obeying the law. So the whole force here in these verses 5 through 8 is to show how absurd and how horrible this thinking is and that because it is so absurd, it should literally be dismissed. May it never be. The very thought of this should even be considered in itself blasphemy. And the scribes and the Pharisees themselves were very simple and hypocritical to their very core. Think about it. The Pharisees of Paul's day loved to condemn others for breaking the Mosaic law. And they hated the idea of God's grace because it went against their works-oriented system of righteousness on which their hope was founded. you got to keep the law if you want to get in. They wanted the Christians to follow and maintain the Mosaic law and all of those ceremonies. Paul says their condemnation is just, or those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Church, hear me this morning. God is just to judge every sinner whose lie brings glory to God. He's just very just to do that. And God imposes the appropriate sentence and verdict for those who blasphemy God, who has revealed the righteousness of Christ in our scriptures. So how do we sum this up? Well, Paul was warning his readers, that young church in Rome that he was writing this letter to, not to draw the wrong conclusion about how the Jews presumed that they were exempt from the judgment because they were circumcised. They were entrusted with the revelations of the Lord. They had the law. And he wanted his readers to know that God is faithful to keep his promises to Israel because his righteousness, unlike the Jews, was dependable. He wanted these new Christians. Remember, this is a young church he's writing to in Rome. He wanted them to understand that God is righteous when he punishes sin and that he also rewards obedience. But listen, we cannot excuse sin just because it magnifies God's righteousness. To have such an attitude literally defames God's name. So as we reflect on this this morning, Paul reveals to each of us our own moral and spiritual condition. And let's be honest, it's not a nice picture, is it, church? There's none righteous, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. As I thought about this, I needed to ask this question. How sinful am I? How sim sinful are each of us, church? Let's be completely transparent with the Lord this morning and recognize we are not really a whole lot different than the Jews of that day that Paul was dealing with. Sin has corrupted man's thinking to such an extent that he lacks the ability to understand the truth of himself apart from God the Holy Spirit. This is why until we are saved out of our depraved state, we are completely blind, church, to the reality of God's glory and His righteousness. Sin promises freedom, but it delivers slavery and bondage. To the alcoholic, 
the bottle or your family to the drug addict, the drugs or your family. Just one more hit and it'll all be okay. One more drink and it'll be okay. You'll forget all about it. God, God understands. So church, hear me. The only way for you and I to see this wonderful greatness of this gospel is to start to first understand how truly sinful and depraved and lost you and I are without Jesus Christ. We are lost without Him. The only way that we could ever be made right with the Father is through Christ alone. Look at verse 9, slide 14. Paul says, what then? Are, Are we better than they? Are we better than those unbelievers? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. They hated that. They hated that. Or the NLT. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Should we conclude that? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the power of sin. What do we see here? Notice the two questions then. What then? Are we better than others? Now the Greek is interesting here. And I try to obey my wife and not put the Greek up this morning, so bear with me. That word better there has the idea of preferring someone else over somebody else. Are we preferred over everyone else? Are the Jews preferred over the Gentiles? And he answers it. He says, no, not at all. Notice that he makes it clear that all are under sin. What does he mean here? Well, Paul wanted the Jews as well as the Gentiles to understand that every human being who has not experienced the righteousness of God and has come to a saving faith in Christ are under sin. Meaning they are helpless and completely captive to its power. We need to understand that. We think this is a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle, church. Someday you're going to drop dead. This is a spiritual battle. This is serious business. Every human being is in one of two positions. Well, they are alive here on planet Earth. They're either under sin or under grace. And this is the only division spelled out to you and I in the Scriptures. And Paul is making it clear that the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, are helpless under sin's power. Church, the problem with people isn't that they just commit sins. The problem is they're enslaved to sin. Think about the sins that we still pamper today, all of us. Take a moment and think about it. What sins are we nourishing? What sins are we giving nourishment to? What sins are we still pampering? Because we're like, Lord, you can have all these areas of my heart, but these ones over here, they're off limits to you, God. I want that sin. I need that sin. And now Paul really, in verses 10 through the rest of the chapter here, he unloads. Look at slide 15. We'll start at verse 10. Paul is now unloading it. And if you highlight the scripture in your personal Bibles, take a look at this. He starts out with, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It's very interesting that those words, it is written, is actually translated in the perfect tense. Remember that the perfect tense speaks of an action that was completed in the past, but has ongoing continuous results in the present. The scriptures that were entrusted to you Jews in the past still hold the same weight and permanence today. Well, if you, you Jews think that the Old Testament is authoritative, and it is, then let's take a look at Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Put up slide 16. What is Paul saying? It is written. Paul is now quoting literally back in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, The fool has said in his heart, There's no God. 
Boy, that's a strong statement. But actually, I should say that David said that back in Psalms. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There's no one who does good. Yahweh has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand. Is there anyone who's seeking after God? Verse 3, there's the conclusion. There's the verdict. They've all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Paul was directly quoting pretty much Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The Gentiles heard it. The Jews heard it that were in that little church back then in Rome. So think about how tragic and sad it was. The Jews of Paul's day, going all the way back even, had God's revealed word to them. Think about it. They had God's revealed word to them. They boasted about having the word. Though all the Gentile nations, the unbelievers of that day, they had their false idols of wood and clay and stone and gold. The Jews had literally God's revealed word directly to them, and they boasted about it. No other nation had the oracles of God at that time, and yet they didn't even know their own scriptures. How many Christians today don't know their own scriptures, but they can tell me what show was on TV. They had the word of God right there. God spoke to them, parted the sea, did miracles, delivered them. And they didn't even know their own scriptures. There's not a single human being who, apart from God's justifying grace, can stand as right before God. He says there's none righteous. What does it mean? We've learned about this back when we started teaching the Romans. Slide 17. Righteousness is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. So God's righteousness is the act or decision by which he, God, not man, he, God, judges and declares a person innocent. There's none righteous, none that does good. Hear me this morning. Because of sin in my life and sin in all of our lives, none of us are innocent before holy God. You will never be good enough on your own by your own acts to make yourself right with God. Those are all of us are not innocent before him. And church, none of us have a righteousness of our own, meaning there is nothing we can do on our own part to make ourselves right or innocent and virtuous before God on our own. Because everything that God does is righteous. Let me share with you a moment, just a real quick story by a famous British journalist. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm shares his life-changing experience with a leper woman. You see, Malcolm was on assignment, and this was in India. So <clears throat> he recounts and he says that when he went for a swim in a river in India, and as he entered the water, his eyes fell upon a woman who was bathing. He states that he felt an impulse to go to her and try to seduce her, much like King David did with Bathsheba. Malcolm says, temptation stormed his mind. Can anyone relate to that, the alcoholic or drug? Temptation storms his mind. He began to swim towards her. The words of his wedding vows came into his mind, but he responded by just swimming faster, faster towards her. The voice of allurement called out, stolen water is sweet, reflecting on Proverbs 9, 17. But he swam even more furiously still. Finally, when he pulled up to her, the woman had turned around, and when he saw that she was a leper, and she had grinned at him, showing her face and her toothless mouth. Malcolm's first reaction was to despise her. He thought to himself, what a dirty, horrible woman. But then... Church, it crashed upon Malcolm that it was not the woman who had leprosy was dirty. 
It was his own sinful heart. Hear me this morning. Since the fall of mankind, all men rest under the curse of sin and that he is his own, on, on his own does not merit salvation. Man cannot save himself. And sin, as we are reading in the text, has corrupted man's thinking so much that man on his own lacks the ability on his own to understand the truth about himself. And as I said last week, until we are saved out of our depraved state, we are blind to the reality of God's glory and righteousness. Paul even says, there's no one who understands. Put up slide 18. <clears throat> so Paul writes something, and I've taught on this before, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul, writing to this church at Corinth, says, listen, the natural man, he means the unsaved man, he does not accept, he does not welcome into his heart the things of the Spirit of God because they are meaningless, they are foolishness to him. In fact, that's where we get the word moron. They're moronic to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So an unsaved man looks at what we're, where he looks at the gospel, a believer puts it up here. He attaches a high value up here. The unsaved man attaches really no value at all. It's foolishness to him. So the thought here is that not only does man not accept the things of God, he's unable to receive them. Jesus points this out, slide 19 in John 8, 43. Here's Jesus talking directly to the people. God the Son. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? The reason is, you cannot hear my word. It stops here. Boom. Hear me this morning, church. This has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of clarity or clear teaching from Scripture. It has everything to do with this message being intolerable to a person's sinful heart. And because of man's sinful heart, his moral depravity, he does not want to accept the gospel. Man thinks he's okay. The government's going to solve all of our problems. Everything's okay. And man, listen, unsaved man will turn to anything or anywhere except to God. What do each of us turn to when we want our own way? What do we turn to? Because our hearts are also these idol-making factories, and depraved man will not seek after God. You know, it's interesting, and what was the preacher's name that preached on this? You know, people are running away from God, not to him. You see, unsaved people, <clears throat> it's like a snatch and grab job. The unsaved people, they want all the blessings that God gives. They'll come to church as long as the preacher sticks to teaching life skills and happy stories. But man, they will run from a church that teaches that man is a sinner and needs to repent. They want all the blessings from God, and they want to keep running away from him. <clears throat> so that's why Paul says, hey, there is none who seeks after God. And that word seeks in the Greek has the idea of craving God, searching out for God. No one is craving him and searching out for him. People today seek out and crave anything that will gratify the flesh. They will search it out. They will crave for it. But sadly, as Paul tells us, they won't search out and crave Christ. What does Paul say here in verse 12? <clears throat> Slide 20. All have turned away. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So the idea of turning away here, in the Greek, has the idea of deviating from, to shun. I don't want your salvation, God. I'm happy with what I got over here. We deviate from it, and we deviate from going the right way. <clears throat> Each has abandoned or corrupted the worship of God. And then he really hits it hard. 
and the English doesn't always do it justice here, together they become useless. Well, it's very interesting, the Greek here and the idea of useless has the idea of something that is putrid and it's offensive. It's like fruit that is spoiled. And you take a whiff of it and it's like, oh man, that smells horrible. It smells putrid. It's spoiled. It's no good. Something that spoils no good. We can't eat that. It's no good. And as I said from the beginning of this message, sin will promise you freedom. But before you know it, it will deliver you into slavery. It's interesting how the Jews responded to Jesus when he said this. Slide 21, John 8, 34. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is, what does it say, church? Is a what? Slave to sin. It's a slave to sin. A few verses later on, slide 22, John 8, 44, he really, really just drops it on him. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks lie, he's speaking from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. In the NLT, slide 23. <clears throat> for you are the children of your father, the devil. You love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. He's a liar and a father of lies. Here's a question for you, for me, for you. Have we ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? What do we call a person that tells a lie? A liar. Think about it. Have we ever used God's name as a cuss word? That's blasphemy. So just on those two alone, if you and I were to be judged on Judgment Day based on our own confession, would we be innocent or guilty? Guilty. That's hard, isn't it? We don't like that, do we? They're going to start throwing things at me now. Protect me, Dr. Carter. You see, Paul wants you and I to know that this is the condition of mankind after fall. All of us have been born outside of the garden, church. And man is enslaved to the desires of the devil. It is the bondage of man's heart that causes him to love evil and hate God. Slide 24. Here's some questions. Ask yourself... All of us. How does this show up in our life presently today? Ask yourself, what is luring you and I to wander away from God's truth because we want things to gratify our flesh? What are those things in our life right now? There is none righteous, none. No one is seeking after God. We've turned away becoming useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Ask ourselves that. You know, Psalm 139, search me, Lord, try me, see if there's any evil way in me. Lord, reveal to me those things that are causing me to slowly wander away from you to serve my own flesh because I think I deserve it. The drug dealer didn't go to the cross for you, did he? The guy selling you the booze that gets you intoxicated, did he go to the cross for you? Did either one of them die for you? No. Did either one of them pay your sin debt in full? Yet we'll give them money because we want what they have because we don't want to deal with reality anymore. And we wander. And then when our world comes crashing in, we start blaming him for the decisions we chose to make apart from him. Do we see the hypocrisy of that yet? Slide 25. Getting quiet in here, Dr. Carr. Church, it's my hope this morning that all of us begin to see how important the gospel truly is. Without Christ, we are lost and we have nothing. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Paul says, listen, you were dead in your trespasses. 
He's talking about this. you were spiritually dead. You may have been physically alive, but you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked formally according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Slide 26. <clears throat> I like how the New Living just breaks it down real simple for us. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin. Are you a present sinner or are you used to live in sin? Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Think about it. When we're doing that, we're actually obeying the devil. He's the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. You're either under sin or under grace. That's it. Church, I'm hoping this morning as I'm winding this down for you now that we truly understand that the only way Church, the only way we can ever see the greatness of the gospel is to see how bad off we really are. When we come to see our lost condition, when we realize, church, that we have nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God apart from Christ, then we can start to see the treasure of the EU Galeon, on the gospel. When our mouths are finally stopped, and we realize, I don't have any righteousness of my own. There's no act where I can make myself right with God by my own power or works. I'm only made right with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary. Well, where's it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm so glad you asked. Slide 27. Here's the gospel pretty much summed up in two verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Paul Again, writing to the church of Corinth, he says, listen, I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received. What was that, Paul? That Christ died for our sins according to the what? The scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Don't make your Bible a once-in-a-while book in your life. Please, I beg you. It is the only truth you have replacing the lies that you are being pounded with in this fallen world, and we don't have a lot of time left. It don't take rocket science to figure that out. If you want Christ to dwell in your heart, humble yourself before Him. Humble yourself before Him with the truth about yourself. Look to Him and only Him in total reliance for salvation. Church, hear me. If you confess your sins, He is then faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and He will continually cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look what Isaiah said. Let's go back, way back in time to Isaiah probably about 2,700 years ago, maybe longer. Isaiah 12, 1 and 2, slide 28. <clears throat> this is back in Isaiah's day. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, Yahweh, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For Yahweh my God is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. Can you say that about yourself this morning? Does that resonate deep in your heart when you hear those words ringing in your ears this morning? You were angry with me, but your anger was turned away and you are comforting me. God, you're my salvation. I'm going to trust in you. I'm not going to be afraid. You're my strength and my song. Man, we can sing a lot of worldly songs. How about singing songs that bring glory and honor to the very God that 
knit us in our mother's womb. The person who has true faith in Christ, listen this morning, hear me. The person who has true faith in Jesus Christ no longer looks at himself or herself to consider himself or herself good enough to be right with the Father. That person looks only to the finished work of Christ who died on that cross for our sins and they rest all of that entirely on that fact alone. They're not resting on any righteousness of his or her own because their righteousness is in Christ and the Father put that righteousness of Christ into their account. Each of us must take our sins, acknowledge them, and lay them completely on Christ. So we can conclude then that the gospel is the power of God. Church, it does not depend on you or me or our faithfulness. Let me say it again. It does not depend on you or me or our faithfulness. If it did, we would all be lost. Hear me this morning. It is God's power alone, church, that saves you and I and keeps us to justify us, to set us apart. Hear what I'm saying to you this morning. It's important. And I know this was a lot to swallow this morning. Listen. You struggling with alcohol, drugs, whatever you're struggling with, you hear me. There's no such thing as being too great of a sinner. Satan wants you to believe that lie and that you're beyond saving, that you're not worth saving, that you've sinned far too much. Does that ever go through our heads? It doesn't matter how many times you've sinned or continue to sin. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you're a murderer or the most self-righteous, prideful sinner on earth. It doesn't matter how much booze you've consumed. How many drugs you've used? Doesn't matter if you're a thief or a drug dealer. Doesn't matter how much profanity that flows out of your mouth. And it doesn't matter how many lies you told. Doesn't matter if you have an abortion. And I could go on and on and on. But the good news is that there's hope for the most desperate, wickedest, darkest sinner. There's hope for the most self righteous, prideful sinner. Why? Church, because it's God's power that's in the gospel. I'm hoping that that brings comfort to you this morning. God is still about the business of rescuing sinners from themselves. And God, through His only Son, did something amazing. He canceled our sin debt. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. How is God's forgiveness and grace applied to your life and my life? How can a man who is dead in his sins save himself? He can't. Hear me. It is God alone who chooses to breathe life into dead sinners like me. He alone is the only one who makes us right with the Father. So when a person is conscious of his own complete inability to do anything that would turn away God's wrath and win God's favor, he's finally ready to trust in and believe that Jesus Christ alone is the one that bore the wrath and curse in his own body on that cross for you and for me. Hear me, on that cross... The sins of every person who would believe were placed on Christ. And his perfect life of obedience and righteousness were placed on him. Like I said before, the worst about me was placed on him, and the best about him was placed on me. And the same goes for you. It was his blood, the blood of God, that was spilled on that cross 2,000 years ago. That blood was spilled. And that blood was what was used to reconcile you and I to the Father. His death satisfied the righteous anger of the Father. His sacrifice and payment for our sin is how salvation has been provided to you. And it's free. And it's free to anyone who will call upon His name. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Won't you confess your sin to Him? Call out to Him. Like I said... It doesn't matter how many times you sin, whether you're a murderer, drug dealer, alcoholic, thief, liar. There's hope for the most desperate, wretched sinner like me and like you. If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you, now is the time, I'm begging you, now is the time for you, you listening around the world right now, to get right with God. Now is the time to confess your sin to Him. 
He already knows what they are anyway. He knew what your sins were going to be before he knit you in your mother's womb. I'm begging you, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ this morning, while you still have breath in your lungs, turn your life to him. Confess your sins. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he is then faithful and just to forgive. Cancel it out. Wipe it away. It's picture the big chalkboard in the classroom that's got stuff about you written all over it. And Jesus grabs that big wet eraser and he just washes it away with his crimson blood. It's all gone. It was paid for at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And if a church ain't preaching that, get out of there. Run. If they're not preaching the blood of Christ applied to your life, I'm telling you, run. You are living in the last days. He can come now at any time. This isn't a time to just toy with your soul. And Father, I pray for everyone listening around the world and listening here this morning, Lord. Help them to see now is the time to get right with you. Look up and receive God's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen.